The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. again. Let's talk about propaganda one more time. I'm Sarah, a graduate linguist focusing on Germanic studies and cognitive science stuff, and I'm guest talking for the real actual last part of the propaganda series. I'm going to start by talking about the alt-right and doublethink. Uh, I feel I may have accidentally implied before when I was talking about mental models and coherence and such that there's not substantial amount of cognitive dissonance and inconsistency in far-right ideologies. Um, as mentioned before, religion is one of the murkier areas of thinking. It's curiously syncretic, you might say. You're as likely to find evangelical canist constituents as neo-pagans and occultists or atheists. Some embrace Christianity as one of the prominent, prominent cultural features of Western civilization, but do not themselves believe in it, for example. The alt-right is broadly misogynistic and sometimes straight-up pro-rape, but there are still women in the movement. One of the major tenets is racism, but there are still alt-writers who are people of color. Milo Yiannopoulos was once a prominent alt-right provocateur who at times hung around with Nazis and uh, who wrote one of the touchstone pieces on how the alt-right presents itself, and whose leaked passwords contained a startling number of pro-Nazi and anti-Semitic references, like Long Knives 1290, which is a reference to the Night of Long Knives and the Edict of 1290 expelling the Jews from England. But even during his era of prominence, many in those circles, including the Daily Stormer's Andrew Anglin, rejected him because he is gay and ethnically part Jewish. Why a gay Jewish man sought the company of Nazis in the first place is anyone's guess, but in all likelihood, his expulsion from Breitbart was inevitable when his usefulness as a token expired. Alt-writers both deny the Holocaust happened and suggest that its only flaw was non-completion. As is traditional in the propagandistic depictions of the world enemy, alt-writers portray Jews as both sniveling, laughable degenerates and as the all-powerful financiers of the One World Order. To a certain extent, some of this is thanks to the fact that, like all ideological movements, the alt-right is not a unitary entity, but a collection of individuals who are united in one particular way, as seemingly tends to be the case with fascism, by what they are against more than what they are for. But not necessarily united in every way, or represented by a single set of specific consistent beliefs. Uh, the unifying point for the alt-right is the idea that equality is a dangerous myth, as white supremacist and editor of American Renaissance J Jared Taylor put it. More specifically, there is a handful of major themes, i.e. white supremacy, that white people are under attack, male supremacy, that straight men are under attack, and, the political, and that political correctness is the worst thing that ever happened to human civilization and an attack on the truth. As a collection of individuals, then, the various paths by which different individuals reach the unifying point, or set of major tenets, may differ considerably. Um, i.e. one alt-writer denies the Holocaust and says it is a hoax per perpetrated by Jews to increase their cultural victim status. Another insists that had the Holocaust not been successful, those Jewish financiers and elite academics would not have the opportunity to destroy the West today. But at the end, they both arrive at Jews as the, center, as the enemy of Western civilization. There's no internal inconsistency for either one, in that case just interpersonal inconsistency. In other cases, it may be that the same person embraces contradictory narratives at different times on an ad hoc basis, depending on what will lead him to his desired conclusion or what will contradict his opponent in the moment. He may genuinely convince himself 
he believes that thing in that moment, or he may be lying to push a real goal. Additionally, the short-lived and emotionally charged nature of some specific types of propaganda, in particular agitation propaganda, makes them easily disposable and forgotten once they are no longer useful. So contradictions in propaganda narratives are expected. Meanwhile, a person who uh, may also have full-on cognitive dissonance. Some people em uh, embrace parts of neo-Nazism but deny what they imply, i.e., say, suggests that femininity is responsible for the decline of the West and that, therefore, the feminine aspects of society must be suppressed. But that same person may be unwilling to admit the obvious implica implication of legal suppression of women. Or someone who consciously believes in sexual hierarchy between the genders, but denies racial hierarchy, which are inevitably co-referential concepts belonging to the same mental models of the world, as I discussed in my last video. An actual, like, fascist propagandist would call that person red-pilled on, on gender, but not red-pilled on race. Finally, the, uh, the shifting and goals-based nature of propaganda also creates weird dissonances. Original Nazi propaganda portrays the Jews as the puppet masters behind both international capitalism and international Marxism. This kind of thing happened partly over time, as the NSDAP propaganda narratives changed according to the present party needs, especially before and after they seized power when much of their rhetoric noticeably changes but it also happens simultaneously and within the same speeches and writings as a consequence of the propagandists trying to perform their inspirational, vaguely revolutionary, socialist populism alongside demonizing Russia and the Jews and immigration and multiculturalism and artistic pluralism, all associated in some way with Bolshevism. Finally, it's common with specifically fascist propaganda, which, as we've said before, is reactionary and power-consolidating, to need to depict its selected enemy as weak in the face of the righteous and glorious cause, but uh, thus emboldening propaganda the propagandized to feel that victory is a historic eventuality. But also they need to depict the world enemy as all-powerful existential threat that will cause the destruction of civilization if a sufficient force is not mustered to stop them. Yes, that's cognitive dissonance, but it's not evidence against the frame-space analysis. It's about the goal of each propaganda piece. Um, with that goal being part of, or emergent from, a frame. Within a power and dominance-based view, or frame or model, where the pyramid is automatically the basis of human relations and civilizations, the narratives that serve that internally consistent model don't always have to agree with each other as long as they all agree with and refer to the pyramid. They call it manipulative discourse for a reason, don't they? In any case, when I talk about propaganda needing to at least have something in common with the target's base assumptions in order to work, I'm more talking about the process by which ordinary people in the non-radicalized world become propagandized and sometimes thereafter radicalized, rather than talking about how much consistency there is in the nebulous and absolutely wild world of the already radicalized. Uh, if an ordinary person has a base assumption that, say, society is in decline, then a propaganda that says the ex-designated world enemy is responsible for the decline in society has a chance of working because it takes the targets given as a given. Most people to whom this discussion is addressed are not alt-writers and probably never will be, but do have some base assumptions in common with the propaganda narratives of the alt-right, which has demonstrably affected mainstream discourse, especially in the last few years. So, anyway... Concerning the wild thinking of the alt-right, I really wanted to talk about Julius Evola, but I already exceeded my word count again, so instead, please Google Julius Evola. He's really fascinating and really terrifying and really influential on the alt-right. 
Speaking of super, super fascism and sex magic, let's talk about the manosphere. Quick! What do pickup artists, incels, or self-described involuntary celibates, Christian fundamentalists, reformed theologians, androphiles, or same-sex attracted men who do not regard themselves as homosexual, men's rights activists, anti-feminists, and, yeah, old-fashioned Nazis, have in common? Well, it turns out a lot, but mainly a preoccupation with discussing and defining masculinity, and often, by extension and in contradistinction, femininity. Very often, it's just as defined by an avoidance of feminine signifiers as it is by an obsession with masculine signifiers. Some manosphere subcategories focus on ideas like neo-masculinity and paleo-masculinity. Neo-masculinity describes the idea of returning to a masculine ideal from the past, and paleo-masculinity is the belief that male domination is anthropologically and biologically natural. There is considerable overlap between white supremacists and what is known as the manosphere, or a loose collection of online spaces defined by a focus on these ideas, not surprisingly, considering their common predecessor in old-school Nazism's misogynistic and authoritarian fetishization of male authority and male excellence. In fact, the Anti-Defamation League has argued that the idea of male supremacy, a term used to describe an ideological belief in the subjugation of women common in, so -called, in the so-called uh, manosphere, is a gateway for young men to be drawn into the broader sphere of white supremacy and neo-Nazism because they are so essentially and underlyingly the same type of thinking. Male supremacy, similarly to white supremacy, generally doesn't stop at subju subjugating the out-group, but inevitably winds up narrowing the definition of the in-group. Uh, the Nazis excluded many ethnic populations we would consider to be white from their definition of whiteness, and uh, similarly, male supremacists inevitably wind up excluding anyone who insufficiently performs the traits and signifiers associated with their ever-narrowing definition of masculinity, which may be anything from being strong to controlling your women, as implied by the common insult on the alt-right cuck or cuckold, a man who has been cheated on by his wife. I just want to stop and point out that being male and this kind of performative masculinity are not the same thing, and it is very far from true that all men act this way. Many men are well-meaning and well-disposed to see women as human beings and equal partners. It's, it's probably true that most men, by no fault of their own, have grown up surrounded by the same tropes and assumptions about the world that deeply informs these worldviews, but enculturation is not predestination, and there's nothing essentially or inherently male about obsession with dominance. Power religion is obsessed with dominance, and power religion latches on to qualities like physical strength as a justification for the establishment of power structures, but it's not men or maleness or masculinity, it's power and the social system structured around it. Men and women are unequally affected by received assumptions and tropes of, of centuries-old deeply ingrained power structures, in part because of service-level qualities like differences in physical strength, but that doesn't mean men or masculinity itself is bad nor does it mean that men are not actually oppressed by this type of thinking. What I am not saying, what I am not saying, is that being male, or a man or masculine, makes you a fascist. What I am saying is that power religion, and by extension its radical, reactionary, self-protective form, fascism, is preoccupied with various beliefs and assumptions about who has the right to hold power over themselves, who has the right to hold power over others, and the power differentials that, in the faith-like worldview of power religion, are self-justifying and self-referential. Power structures, seeking to justify themselves, point to differentials and claim they are prescriptive, within this frame being more strong or dominant or more whatever qualia are associated with masculinity. 
or in contradistinction being less feminine, becomes synonymous not just with holding power, but with being entitled to hold power. That's the role that propaganda plays. Remember that this is just the base cognitive frame which male supremacist propaganda takes advantage of. In order to integrate new propositions like women who have dominance, power, strength, influence, or any other masculine code of quality should have that quality subtracted. That proposition is one often integral to male supremacist propaganda, but it doesn't start there. If the target doesn't already feel that men ought to have more X, then propaganda won't be able to convince them that women should have X subtracted, because it would essentially be a non-sequitur in their existing frames. And that's not to say that a propaganda can't take a true fact like men are on average physically stronger than women, and frame it in such a way that it can set the stage for concluding that men ought to be stronger physically and non-physically than women. There's really no explaining neo-Nazis without explaining the significant recent strands of misogyny found in the manosphere. The ideas are essentially linked, and as often as is often expressed by their most prominent proponents. As I've already mentioned here, there's good reason to think that young men are often drawn into other forms of extremism, including ideological circles of neo-Nazis, via male supremacy. Fascism in European history leans heavily on white supremacy. Obviously, there have been varieties of fascism in place like Japan that don't include that element. But arguably, present-day neo-fascism leans just as heavily on anti-feminism, an attitude, by the way, I used to agree with. There before the grace of God, yeah? I mentioned this just once again to remind you that nothing in this podcast should be construed as an attack on the moral character of those who have consumed and repeated propaganda. It is possible that women are seen as a greater threat um, to the existing power system now, or that they are received, uh, perceived as having obtained or demanded too much power recently, but whatever it is, present-day neo-fascism is much more fixated on women as the threat that justifies the mustering of great force than their 20th century predecessors. 20th century Nazis were very misogynistic, excluding women from states of uh, state positions and emphasizing that women must not encroach on spaces that rightfully belong to men, as well as claiming that feminization of men and masculinization of women, to quote literally Joseph Goebbels, are linked, even causally linked, to the degeneration and decline of society. But present-day neo-Nazis are much more fixated on women as the cause of societal decline. Though in both cases the notion falls apart entirely without the base assumption that society is in decline. Indeed, the fear of being dominated by women is one of the unifying features of the various manosphere and extremist groups. To take a sympathetic view, young men who grow up receiving the message that if they aren't sexually dominant, they aren't really men, or that if they are emotionally self-aware, they're not manly, and who grow up receiving the message that doing the right things, rescuing the princess, or following the right steps, or becoming successful entitles them to sex as a reward, are not at fault for receiving those messages, but they are in for a rude awakening when women and girls don't play by the same rules. And they feel cheated. And since they've been taught to eschew more, uh, emotional self-awareness as a form of feminine weakness, they don't have the tools to interrogate that feeling of being cheated. Now, I'm not saying they are right to feel that way, or that it's true, I'm just saying that they feel that way because they are playing by the rules they have learned. But women increasingly aren't. He was told that being sexually successful makes him, or being not sexually successful, excuse me, makes him not masculine. And he was told that if he did X things, he would be sexually successful. Uh, but he was denied the success that he was promised. He wasn't promised it by women, but by the frames that he received. 
so he feels emasculated. Women aren't playing by those rules in part thanks to the increase of feminism in society. Therefore, male supremacist propaganda takes advantage of those presuppositions he was taught and tells that frustrated young man that feminism is responsible for emasculating him. And from there to get to women have unfair power to emasculate men thanks to feminism, and then to women should have power over themselves subtracted is not a huge leap. Women, says the propaganda, can and should be made to play by the same rules you were taught. Again, not saying this is how it really is, just saying this is how they feel and I'm trying to be sympathetic. It goes further than that, obviously. Eventually, male supremacy leads to the idea that men should make the rules by which women play. And that's how you get both incels, involuntary celibates, or men who blame women for their lack of sexual success, and pickup artists, men who use giving dating advice, or the construction of steps by which young men should be able to find sexual success as a way of advocating for the domination, manipulation, control, and objectification of women. Even though incels and PUAs are often very much at odds thanks to the uh, PUAs literally promising that following a certain set of deeply hateful steps will get you women, which doesn't pan out, uh, they're linked by their shared base assumption that under the right conditions, i.e. being a nice guy, or using the right techniques, men are entitled to women, or even more fundamentally, that women are for men. There was an interesting study in 2015. Uh, Teresa Vesquillo, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, performed a series of experiments in which men were given tests and then told that they scored like a female colleague, worse than a female colleague, or better than a female colleague taking the same test, with scores of like or worse being considered possible threat conditions on the hypothesis that the men might perceive it as a threat to their masculinity. Then they were asked to imagine if their scores were made public. Men who were told that they scored like or worse than a female colleague taking the same test expressed greater worry about how they would be perceived by others, expressed greater anger, and expressed more support for ideologies that promoted the subjugation of women, after one test implying that they scored like a woman. The point is that all these propositions are linked. Feminism is perceived to be connected to a particular cluster of ideas, which, by extension, makes all the other ideas in that cluster, um, like agitation against racism and the rise of LGBTQ visibility, also responsible for the things that make that young man feel angry and powerless. That cluster of ideas is identified as political correctness or cultural Marxism, a term especially well-suited to describe a forced redistribution of power away from those who are perceived to have earned it, toward those who are perceived not to have worked for it. The propaganda takes the feeling of powerlessness, which may be expressed in the proposition, I am powerless in this world, and links it to a cause outside of the young man's control. You earned power, but had it taken away. You are powerless because of forced redistribution of power from you to others who didn't earn it. Ultimately, this is easily coherent with conspiracy theories like the Frankfurt School theory, where there's this vast plot to take away what rightfully belongs to the in-group and give it to the out-group. In our first episode, we talked about how agitation propaganda is successful when it designates someone as the source of all misery. We talked about how you're in dangerous territory when there's a monolithic human enemy to blame for everything. Well, here it is. As just one of an internet-sized va- internet massive corpus of examples, Anders Breivik, the neo-Nazi mass murderer who killed 77 people in Norway, he wrote a 1,500-page mas- uh, manifesto blaming female sexual self-determination and feminism for emasculating men 
and for an imbalance of birth rates between racial groups that white supremacists fear will eventually end in the replacement of the white race by hordes of Muslims and non-whites. Preoccupation with comparing birth rates between white ethnic groups and immigrants or um, other non-white groups is another feature of 20th century white supremacists, 21st century white supremacists, male supremacists, and Fox News. Obviously, the process I describe above is only one way that young people, especially young men, get radicalized by online cultures like incel subreddits and 4chan. Investigator Robert Evan examined the stories of 75 fascist activists on how they got red-pilled, a term for getting woke to the oppression of white males in various areas of social justice. Um, or, as, as the fascists themselves described it, being fully red-pilled is acknowledgement of the JQ, or Jewish question. And found that a lot of young men report getting drawn in with memes and jokes, which progress to ironic racism, and then to just unironic racism. White supremacists don't target exclusively Jews, they target anyone who fails to meet their criteria for whiteness. In the same way, male supremacists don't exclusively seek to control and or erase women, but to control and or erase anyone who fails to meet their criteria for masculinity. Which, like whiteness, to a white supremacist, has no real ethical meaning and relies heavily on fabricated bunk science. Men who fail to perform the outward signifiers of neo-masculinity are despised as betas. The obsession with policing masculinity goes so to such extremes that, within the manosphere, a widespread fixation on testosterone levels and sperm counts has developed, and there's this bunk science myth about the effects of plant phytoestrogens, which in reality have zero effect on human male hormone levels because plant biology is, you know, it's plant biology, it's not human, uh, and it's just a similar sounding name for a chemical particularly those found in soybeans, which is the uh, origin of the term soy boy, if you're curious. It's based on a fear these circles have cultivated of having almost any contact with feminizing influences. Femininity is indeed apparently a disease you can contract by eating the wrong kinds of beans. You know, like getting salmonella from raw chicken. Far-right websites first hype the fear of women and fear of femaleness and feminization, and then cynically shill testosterone pills and creams to their audience at $30 a bottle. It's a racket. It brings to mind older versions of fake science, where a person's ability to meet the criteria of whiteness was determined by supposed racial markers like the size and shape of the nose or the long-debunked pseudoscience of phrenology. These goofy male supremacists measure your ability to meet the criteria of masculinity by your hormone levels and sperm counts, as well as by outward performance and appearance. Young men agonize and self-loathe over their sperm counts. <sighs> These similarities are not incidental. They're symptoms of the kind of in-group, out-group thinking that is foundational to fascist ideologies. Preservation of the in-group against the looming threat of the out-group which increasingly requires defining the in-group in contradistinction to the out-group, uh, whether that out-group is non-whiteness or non-masculinity. Remember in the last episode how I said to keep the name of that website, Return of Kings, in mind? Now remember how I said that fascism is tied up with a lot of assumptions about who has the right to hold power over themselves and others, and that a characteristic of fascism is an obsession with restoring some primordial state, with returning to a historical era in the past when power was exclusively in the hands of the people who it should belong to, with returning to the good old days, 
Return of Kings is almost the most perfect example of linguistic cues for cognitive frames I've ever seen because it contains the history worship of fascism, the need to restore a primordial state, the fixation on masculinism, and the obsession with the power and authority in just three words. Return of Kings is one of the prominent manosphere sites that promotes the idea of neo-masculinity and paleo-masculinity. As a reminder, neo-masculinity is the idea of the restoration of some ancient, sometimes understood as Greek or Roman or Germanic, ideal of masculine excellence, and paleo-masculinity is the idea that male dominance is anthropologically natural. It's worth noting that such ideas depend on a base assumption that human hierarchies are biologically and anthrop anthropologically natural. You know like lobsters. Because power religion. Also, Return of Kings advocated for the legalization of rape in case I forgot. This obsessive neo-masculinism isn't just friendly with fascism, it is fascism. It's the exact same impulse, the impulse of power systems to preserve themselves. It's power religion tightening its grip on the in the face of the woman question, and before you think I'm exaggerating, the alt-right and literal neo-nazi blogs and YouTube channels have written about the woman question in those words. The in-group, the group entitled to hold power, sharpens and tightens the definition of in-group membership to exclude more and more people in a, as a way of consolidating power. And that's why it's important that the focus is on the performance of a particular type rather than solely on the state of being male. Plenty of males are excluded from the ever-narrowing in-group and labeled or out-grouped as betas or cucks or gays or SJWs or whatever else. It widens the gap between in-group and out-group as much as possible, it doubles down on its claim to power on whatever grounds necessary in the moment, and it pushes for the subjugation or erasure of the out-group on the zero-sum thinking that if the in-group does not maintain dominance, they will inevitably become dominated by the out-group. If this description sounds like the description of influential political philosophy of actual literal Nazi Carl Schmitt, there's a reason for that. First. The historical domination of women by men is threatened by mere self, female self-determination, as, as expressed by white nationalist sympathizer Stefan Molyneux in his video, The Matriarchal Lineage of Corruption, quote, Women who choose the assholes will end this race. They will end this human race, and if we don't start holding them accountable. Women guarantee criminality, sociopathy, politicians, and I don't know how to make the world a better place except by holding women accountable. All the cold-hearted jerks who run the world came out of the vaginas of women who married assholes. Women keep the evil of the species going by continually choosing these guys. If women chose... nice guys, we would have a glorious and peaceful world in one generation. I've got some parts because he rants a lot and there's a lot more expletives, etc. But he suggests, or actually nearly screams aloud, that holding women accountable, i.e. punishing women for choosing their own sexual partners, is the solution to societal decline. He also suggests in his Fall of Rome video that women are responsible partly for the fall of Rome because they weren't keeping up the birth rate. Confess rapist Roosh V complains in one of his talks, as recorded by Reggie Yates in a BBC documentary, Women are no longer trained to submit to a man, to serve a man. Women are being applauded and encouraged to look like fat outer space cyborgs. Women and gays are seen as superior to straight men. And there's a reference to the insufficiently masculine men being outgrouped and categorized with women. 
There's also incel mass murderers like Elliot Roger, whose extremely boring and mostly autobiographical manifesto begins with humanity. All of my suffering on this world has been at the hands of humanity, particularly women. And ramps up for about 140 pages to conclude, women should not have the right to choose who to mate and breed with. That decision should be made for them by the rational men of intelligence. If women continue to have rights, they will only hinder the advancement of the human race by breeding with degenerate men and creating stupid degenerate offspring. So there's a eugenics and fascism together. And neo-Nazi mass murderer Anders Breivik complains in his manifesto about the feminization of Europe, blaming women, in particular but not exclusively feminist women, for not having enough babies, for making unnatural demands for equality, and for using their erotic capital to control men. In other words, the commonplace but nonsensical claim that women are the gatekeepers of sex, an incel-based assumption and central doctrine, implying that for women, self-determination is the same as controlling others, controlling men. But perhaps most essential to the recent surge in male supremacist thinking the idea of, is the idea of women, of victims, holding abusers and those in power accountable. It is framed as a threat that the out-group, the non-masculine, will dominate and control the in-group, the masculine. Therefore, in order to self-preserve, the power structure reacts by circling the wagons and doubling down. So have you seen the Founders Ministry video? This type of thinking uh, I talked about is a characteristic of the male supremacist who feels that he is entitled to power, in particular over others, entitled to the submission of the non-masculine, which includes women, children, and the insufficiently macho fellow man, as well as those within the LGBTQ communities, and has it had it taken away from him. This terror of a redistribution of power, you could call it, is an expression of Jared Taylor's fascist presupposition, which uh, he says is a unifying feature of the alt-right, a fear of inequality, of not being on top of the pyramid. It's dangerous to those at the top who award themselves the benefits of inequality thanks to the self-referential nature of power in their worldview. Being at the top means you are entitled to be at the top. It is that way, so it ought to be that way. Now, here's where we can talk a little about the spread of attitudes versus information. Um, see, someone doesn't have to repeat direct verbatim alt-right or manosphere rhetoric to demonstrate the influence of this kind of propaganda. As I said in the first episode, one of the long-term goals of propaganda is creating a new normal. One way this is often done is in terms of the Overton window, which describes the range of acceptable public discourse. Extremists often use very far fringe rhetoric to make what was previously would have been considered extreme positions look moderate by comparison, which is called shifting the Overton window. Uh, something like this has been going on in recent years surrounding the spread of male supremacist propaganda. See. Extreme ideas like legalizing rape, removing barriers to adult child sex, or disenfranchising women have been floating around in fringe communities for a long time, but gaining more and more prominence in recent years, especially after the last presidential election. Which makes the, in reality, still extreme positions of making rape harder to prosecute by requiring a certain number of witnesses, or the position of requiring women to give a certain amount of childlike deference to all men by, de uh, by default, seem more moderate in comparison. Um, and therefore more acceptable in public discourse, which is a shift of the Overton window. Additionally, the recent shift from the old conservative party line that patriarchy doesn't exist, it's a fabrication of feminist gender scholars trying to seize power for themselves, 
to the increasingly common attitude in mainstream rightists of outrightly embracing patriarchy as the proper way of the world has not occurred in a vacuum, but in a context of increasing dis disinhibition under the influence of extremist fringe rhetoric. The Tim Baileys of the world may have felt the same kind of cheated entitlement and the power frustration before the Rushbys and Andrew Englands of the world suggested it was their right to feel that way, their right to be alphas, their right to be deferred to, but their openness in embracing and demanding those attitudes and the increasing boldness of their audiences in accepting and repeating those attitudes has occurred in a particular cultural climate. The Baileys don't have to call their invented doctrines of masculinity and dominance their insatiable power lust, the longing to return to an imagined primordial era of manliness as godhood, neo-masculinity, in that word, in order to be exhibiting the influence of the people who do use that word. I literally came back to edit this script after I saw Tim Bailey's bizarre tweets implying the deeply impressive, or excuse me, deeply oppressive, uh, violent rape cultural sexual ethics of ancient Rome, including legal situations where the rape of women, girls, slaves, and young boys is completely permissible, were a model of sexual ethics that should be considered instructive or admirable in some way because they revolved around the quasi-mystical, quasi-spiritual, legal, and, and institutional elevation of the masculine and subjugation of the non-masculine, including, importantly, not just the explicitly feminine, but all insufficiently macho, aka soft, persons, which includes soft, Young boys. Ugh. I felt gross just saying that. Ugh. And even men who do not have the rights of citizenship, aka civil rights, such as slaves and foreigners. That's right. The legal recognition of the state is apparently a meaningful characteristic of non-soft masculinity, and who is and is not allowed to be buggered, in Tim Bailey's own words. Not only were these tweets mind-blowing in their implications for sexual ethics, but they were like the perfect crystallized exemplar of the influence of the antiquity obsession among fringe white supremacist and manosphere-adjacent groups, and how their twisted ideas about classical antiquity, especially sex and race in, in antiquity, are now being adopted by evangelical leaders in the mainstream. Mind-blowing and alarming. Uh, on the other hand, some items of specific re re uh, rhetoric have definitely served as watermarks of these shifting attitudes and how they have spread from corners of the internet where the reactionary spasm of power frustration to outright fascism has already occurred into the mainstream. Take, for example, the alpha male. Because the term alpha male is derived from recent bad science, it doesn't itself turn up in, for example, the works of Goebbels, but it definitely does reflect old-school Nazi obsession with masculinity and power and dominance and the rightful places of men and women in society, as well as a pronounced anxiety about assuring that power and authority remained in the hands of the men to the exclusion of women. Worth noting uh, is that the views of modern-day far-righters and honestly mainstream reformed circles concerning women would have been a little too extreme for Joseph Goebbels himself, or at least his shrewd sense of optics. Uh, Joseph Goebbels was seemingly aware that strict patriarchalist views were not coherent enough with the thinking of a large segment of his population, presumably women in the pro-suffragist 20s. Women's suffrage became official in, 19, uh, in Germany in 1919. Though they weren't completely incoherent with his whole audience's thinking, especially with the mindset of German men whose monopoly on political power had recently taken a serious blow. Anyway, According to the social hypothesis of the alpha male, men who perform dominance and hypermasculinity are alphas, 
while men who, per who are perceived as not being adequately dominant are called betas or cucks or male feminists or soy boys or whatever. White nationalist Richard Spencer once suggested to a Rolling Stone interview that women seek out white nationalist boyfriends because they are attracted to alpha sperm. <laughs> this idea is very meaningful to them. Of course, the whole theory of the alpha male comes from a description of wolf behavior proposed by scientist David L. Meck. One should note that behavior observed in one species does not automatically translate to another species. Um, humans have different cognition and physiology and social structures than wolves do, to understate the question. But even were that not the case, L. David Meck has since denounced his own theory, stating that it was a mistake derived from observing captive wolves, i.e. wolves cut off from their natural way of living, but wolves in the wild don't even have alpha males. It's also connected to chimp social behavior, though. The point of it is to add a pseudoscientific veneer to an existing belief or assumption in the natural dominance of males and the hierarchical order of human relations. The term alpha male appears to have been steadily increasing in usage since the 60s, but has experienced a spike in popularity since the mid-2000s. It may have been popularized by the 2005 book The Game by, yep, a pickup artist named Neil Strauss. The book was a bestseller, and the term alpha male is highly is a high-frequency subject on the alt-right and manosphere regions of the internet, you know, especially incel subcommunities, POA groups, and places like the Red Pill subreddit and incel.me. Um, Mike Chernovich, a men, men's rights activist, anti-Semite, and white genocide conspiracy theorist, said on Twitter that rape via an alpha male is different from other forms of rape. We can't really understand this, as our culture is too detached from instinct. The term seems to have been popularized in the manosphere by a PUA, probably sometime simultaneously with its rise in popularity in neo-Nazi and neo-fascist communities, and then spread into mainstream discourse. Take, for example, the 2017 Fox News opinion piece hilariously titled, Society is creating a new crop of alpha women who are unable to love. That's right, unable to love. <laughs> or PJ Media's 10 Essential Traits of Alpha Males, or... Look, you get the point. These ideas, uh, this idea is pseudoscience that appeals to people because it clicks in with some of their deeply rooted assumptions about power as self-justifying. There's little questioning in these groups or in this thinking whether the alpha is a real good is real and a good model of behavior. It's just taken as a given. It appeals to the idea, very much enjoyed by old school Nazis, of the apex male as the rightful and naturally dominant leader. It's 2019's Übermensch. It feels right to these people because it confirms what the target already takes as a starting assumption. Human hierarchy is a naturally occurring feature of social order. You know, like lobsters. <laughs> this idea is closely connected to fears about the decline of society, by the way, as Stefan Molyneux will gladly rant at you for hours. The alpha fantasy is a power fantasy in which antisocial traits in particular those associated with some aspects of the famous dark tetrad from psychology of narcissism, sociopathy, sadism, and Machiavellianism, by the way, become the signal of a person's right to social and sexual dominance. It's a story that promises some people are just dominant and as such just get access to sex and positions of authority by virtue of being what they are. I suppose you can imagine what base assumptions, frames, or mental models might inform this kind of thinking by now, right? In a word, the alpha male is the purest, silliest expression of male supremacy. 
the supreme male. In 1951, during his trial for attempting to revive Italian fascism, Julius Evola, I know, shut up, a racialist who believed anti-Semitism was necessary for the racial rebirth of society, and who has become a foundational thinker of the alt-right's philosophy, denied being a fascist. He said, instead, that he was a super-fascist. Evla also believed in Tantra and sex magic. Apparently, he was okay with rape because it was natural, and most importantly, believed in the idea of virya, or spiritual manhood, masculinity as a force of spirit and nature, the glorious order to femininity's duplicitous chaos. Maleness was indicative of kingship, priesthood, and along with the total subjugation of women, was part of the natural primordial heroic law. He may have been referring to semen as the source of maleness as spiritual superpower because sex magic or whatever. Point is, all these poor manosphere kids getting hung up on their sperm counts is not without precedent, nor is it, a, is it without, without precedent that people who are obsessed with their own right to power and their right to be submitted to um, read religious or spiritual significance into male physiology and masculinity as some kind of ephemeral force that can be subtracted by exposure to feminizing influence. Like soybeans, I guess. And its connection with fascism is as old as fascism itself. Umberto Eco's 14 characteristics of fascism include contempt for the weak, machismo, or the sexual uh, sexualization of power and dominance, along with disdain for women and non-standard sexualities. Let's do another Lexeme example this time with less magic sperm. Time for the big one, cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism is the same thing as cultural Bolshevism, an idea also closely tied up with the Frankfurt School conspiracy theory, according to which a, a group of nearly uniformly Jewish academics uh, and Marxists associated with the Frankfurt School are responsible for virtually everything wrong with culture. Hello, monolithic human enemy responsible for everything bad in the world. The narrative of cultural Marxism predictably begins with and is tightly bound up in Nazi propaganda. And that's what it is, a story. And narr narratives have uh, power in our lives because they evoke and resonate with our base assumptions, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a way we need to interrogate. Regardless of how you feel about the real critical theories advanced by the members of the Frankfurt School, which, yes, refers to a real prominent school of social theory founded by uh, academics in the early 20th century, no one's denying that much. <laughs> the Frankfurt School conspiracy theory is unavoidably a creation of Nazi-era anti-Semitic narratives around cultural Bolshevism. A phenomenon Nazi propagandists and their contiguous present-day counterparts explicitly blame on the Jews seeking to destroy art and culture and dismantle, dismantle Western civilization. In their plot to take over the world and institute a one-world order, they referred to Karl Marx as Marx Mordecai. They wrote numerous pamphlets, essays, and works of propagandistic cultural criticism explaining that Kultur Bolshevismus uh, was an invention of the Jews who wanted to undermine Western civilization. Yes, that term, Western civilization, too, is one that peaked in usage during the Nazi era, and the whole story of the fight between the art and culture Marxist-Leninist-Bolshevists and the one true heritage of Western civilization is a story entirely of the invention of propagandists. Incidentally, the term Western civilization is a term that sweeps a huge and diverse multicultural history into one homogenous collectivist singularity, precisely as we are supposed to fear the cultural Marxists are going to do. From Joseph Goebbels' essay, Communism with the Mask Off, 
there was a lot of anti-communist content in Nazi propaganda. Quote, it was the Jew who discovered Marxism. It was the Jew for who for decades past has endeavored to stir up world revolutions through the medium of Marxism. It is the Jew who is today at the head of Marxism in all countries of the world. In its final consequence, it signifies the destruction of all commercial, social, political, and cultural achievements of Western Europe in favor of a deracinated and nomadic international cabal, which has found its representation in Judaism. This grandiose attempt to overthrow the civilized world is so much more dangerous in its effects because the communist international, which is a past master of the art of misrepresentation, has been able to find its protectors and pioneers among a great part of these intellectual circles in Europe whose physical and spiritual destruction must be the first result of Bolshevik world revolution. From Gerhard Hans, oof, Christuskreuz und Hakenkreuz, or The Cross Christ and the Swastika, we saw the terrifying clarity, without any doubt, that the enemy of the German people, Bolshevism, knew very well that a Soviet Germany could come only if it succeeded in separating and removing the German from his faith and his god, destroying, eliminating, or making ridiculous everything holy in German. Bolshevism's campaign was satanic on the fronts of politics, the economy, culture, the arts, entertainment, and the press. Those are just a couple of prototypical examples. The narrative is one of the fundamental through lines of the whole corpus. For another example that actually starts with the Jewish question and gets to Marxism's war on Western civilization within a few lines, check out Goebbels' European Crisis, which can be found on the German Propaganda Archive online. Not every aspect of neo-Nazi rhetoric exactly mirrors that of the 20th century Nazis. I've mentioned more than once that older nationalist rhetoric had a veneer of socialist uh, so socialism to it, because at that time the Nazis came to power, socialism was, uh, and the narrative of social change it repre represented was really popular among the Germans, and the Nazis were populists. Modern-day Nazi rhetoric is much more aligned with right-wing populism, and is therefore generally pretty anti-socialist, even while occasionally still having socialist in the name. Mid-century Nazism was coherent with the popular frames of thinking within its target audience, mid-century Germans, while neo-Nazism is coherent within the populist frames of its target audience, frequently modern-day conservatives. In the older narratives, capitalism and international finance and cultural Bolshevism and cultural Marxism were code phrases for the Jews, but they didn't need to downplay the anti-Semitism as much. Nazis were openly anti-Semitic from their earliest rhetoric. By contrast, in the more palatable mainstream versions of alt-right narratives, the anti-Semitic angle of the story is usually masked by words like the Frankfurt School and the symbolic synecdoche of George Soros, a wealthy Jewish man blamed for funding, i.e. empowering, groups of people who are seen as a threat to the status quo. Um, excuse me, I lost my place for some reason. Oh, and he's, uh, he's connected to various conspiracy theories in which he is responsible for masterminding and puppeteering the Marxist takeover of the world. Much like the Rothschilds, a family of rich Jewish bankers, uh, were blamed by the original Nazis. In fact, um, neo-Nazi propaganda often frames George Soros as being controlled in turn by the Rothschilds. The Frankfurt School, Soros, and once again cultural Marxism are figureheads and symbols of a world power. That's another key phrase, by the way, for Nazis. And the critical elements of a story whose pieces are still the same and always have been. 
The difference is in how much more neo-Nazis must rely on hiding their anti-Semitic thinking behind sanitized terminology compared with their predecessors, and that even is less the case with each passing day. As a target's fear of social obsolescence and, or replacement, and their resentment of those people who are trying to ruin a perfectly good society with their systems theory and social criticism is stoked and encouraged, and they find themselves seeking out communities that affirm that resentment, they get more and more comfortable with the openly hateful rhetoric to be found on uh, 4chan's poll and alt-right circles where variants of the happy merchant meme and Pepe the Frog and swastikas are passed around. And then, well, pretty soon they're on YouTube explaining how there's a difference between an individual Jew and world Jewry and using a picture of George Soros' face as shorthand for world Jewry. Or they're marching down a dark street with a tiki torch chanting blood and soil and the Jews will not replace us. Or they're releasing a manifesto raging against all the women who didn't give them the sex they thought they were owed before setting out to punish those women as Elliot Roger did. Or opening fire on a mosque or a university or a church. There are some differences in the surface representation because the popular frames of thinking among the target range are different. Still nationalist, still fascist, still anti-Semitic still built around a story which designates someone as the source of all misery, someone who is not too powerful. Let's do a little demonstration. If you track hits for the phrases cultural Marxism and cultural Bolshevism using Google's Ngram viewer, they spike in usage in between 1930 and 1940. Unsurprisingly, then fall off and suddenly start gaining traction again in the 1970s and more in the 1980s till most recently in the last decade when they rise to comparable prominence again, though Bolshevism is preferred in the earlier texts and Marxism is preferred in the texts since the 1990s, it's important to note that even if they are not semantically identical, they are used interchangeably. Meanwhile, the term Frankfurt School appears in the 40s, virtually disappears, and then suddenly spikes in the 70s. The term Western Civilization shows a similarly suspect arc. It has a smoother rise to prominence than, say, cultural Bolshevism does, which was definitely coined by the Nazis, but it clearly shows a rise in usage in harmony with the rise of 20th century ethno-nationalism, and peaks in usage in 1942. The smoother rise is, speaking broadly, in particular in the German corpus, the phrase clearly experiences its sharpest rise between the 1920s and the 1950s. Now, I'm just using the Ngram viewer to demonstrate something quickly and easily, which I have observed previously in prior research in my program. By themselves, these observations would not be definitive proof. Um, if I were doing this in a real research capacity, I would use a much more rigorous methods, and I would enlist the help of computational linguists to help design and opera operationalize my search, and control the scope of my corpora, etc. These are only broad trends in limited corpora. For example, it's unlikely that Google's Ngram viewer is searching Deschema, or its modern-day American legacy, The Daily Stormer. But it is still an enlightening view into how tracking specific slogans and terms through public discourse can tell you something about how, when, and why those terms trend. Other rhetorical tricks that spread directly from the alt-right to the mainstream include obsession with birth rates. Online neo-fascists absolutely love Tucker Carlson for repeating this, among other common neo-Nazi talking points. Women as the gatekeepers of sex, an idea I first encountered on The Federalist, but which is widespread in mainstream discourse and assumptions, um, but which is, as mentioned, basically the foundational doctrine and base assumption of incel culture. Quote, blood and soil, which was an ethno-nationalist slogan of the NSDAP, 
uh, was chanted by neo-Nazis at the Charlottesville rally and expresses a popular presupposition among Christian chemists. And the point is not to say these ideas are guilty by association because bad Nazis also believed them, but to point out that these ideas are inherited directly from the propaganda of palingenetic fascist ethno-ultra-nationalists through the ages. It's not association, it's lineage and it's influence. We're not saying this idea is bad because very bad people believe it, but this idea is bad and you don't even, uh, didn't even think of it on your own. You got this idea from disingenuous and manipulative agents whispering in your ears to stoke up your feelings and subrational self-interest and in-group favoritism so you would help them achieve their goals of power. But since the ideas were always manipulative, you will be thrown to the wayside along with everyone you thought was so dangerous. Because that's what propaganda is. You can't just be like, just because it's propaganda doesn't mean it's propaganda. Genetic fallacy. Propaganda is breathtakingly fast in the digital age. Thanks to network dynamics, as I mentioned before, propaganda narratives quickly become self-reproducing and self-reinforcing. Within a few minutes of the news breaking that the Notre Dame Cathedral, considered by some a prominent symbol of the West, in spite of its history and Western history both being more complicated and Notre Dame's elevation to its present prominent status being way more recent than the mythic and symbolic concept implies, a politician named Christopher Hale tweeted that, I kid you not, a friend of a friend said the fire was deliberately set. Quote, a Jesuit friend in Paris who works in Notre Dame told me uh, cathedral staff said that the fire was intentionally set. He quickly followed up by saying that it was an unsubstantiated rumor with zero evidence and deleted the tweet just minutes later. Despite the tweet being literally the only evidence at the time, I'm sure the Gab, 4chan, 8chan circles have developed evidence of all kinds since then. Uh, the story was picked up and spread rapidly throughout right-wing um, circles. On the apocryphal anecdotal word of some guy's friend's acquaintance. Importantly, the tweet said nothing about who allegedly set the fire, but the story that became the official explanation of the online horizontal agitprop machine while the cathedral was still on fire was that Muslims set the church on fire, or alternatively, and a little spicier, that Jews acting, behalf on, acting on behalf of, yep, the Rothschild family, sets a fire. Why did the word of some guy on the internet's friend's alleged acquaintance take off so fast as proof of Islamist or Jewish violence against a symbol of Western civilization? Because the idea that the fire was set deliberately instantly clicked with the established propaganda, propaganda narratives about Muslim and Jewish violence in Europe. It's very likely that many people instantly thought it must have been the designated enemy before or entirely without seeing the tweet or its screenshots of it being passed around as evidence. They just jumped right to the cathedrals on fire to blame the Muslims or blame the Jews on a gut feeling. But to those who did see it and pass on the tweet, it felt like evidence. Some version of, their, of this story started turning up in my newsfeed, repeated by run-of-the-mill, probably not anti-Semitic, non-propagandist, normal conservatives within minutes. Repeated, um, they repeated the it was Islamic violence story rather than the it was Jews version, but both versions were fabricated out of thin air solely on the grounds that if a prominent symbol of the West is burning, it must have been the world enemy who did it. Pay attention, because that's important. 
In agitation propaganda, a single monolithic world enemy is responsible for all the misery of the world, right? So any individual instance of misery or tragedy, especially an instance of tragedy striking an emotionally resonant symbol of the in-group, must be the doing of the world enemy. It can never be an accident. That's what happened. The narrative of the designated enemy being responsible for all misery was already self-reproducing and self-reinforcing to the extent that literally nothing is needed for each instance of tragedy to be presupposed to be the fault of the designated enemy. The evidence is so flimsy because evidence is a helpful but non-requisite byproduct of having already decided who is to blame before the tragedy even strikes. And yeah, you can bet this story instantly caught on among Gab users and 4chan users and 8chan users. Infowars associate and testosterone enhancement salesman, Sawyer fearmongering alt-light conspiracy theorist Paul Joseph Watson was repeating it um, on Twitter and providing additional equally flimsy evidence just to add to the conspiracy theory. I'm not... I'm not talking about genetic fallacy stuff here. I'm talking about how a flow of information and ideas that starts with the original Nazis and ends with a vicious feedback loop that involves conservatives and normal people acting as facilitators to the growth of a truly hideous worldview that demonstrably leads only to death. I'm talking about horizontal propaganda. Another telltale sign of a propaganda message, as we discussed before, is the presence of a ready-packaged script that counters all evidence without having to engage and that's the perpetual script that accompanied the Notre Dame conspiracy theories. Anyone who says it wasn't deliberately set by Islamists or Jews as a symbolic act of violence against Western civilization, an idea invented in the very recent history solely for the purpose of propping up the myth of a unified white culture, must be controlled by political correctness, or must be in on the Marxist conspiracy. Using the term cultural Marxism doesn't make you an anti-Semite. And your understanding of that word may not have a conscious anti-Semitic element. You may not think of it as anti-Semitic, but the anti-Semitic element, the cultural narrative that birthed the term and its variants in the first place, is there for those who are in the know, regardless of how you mean it. And this is why Arendt's observation that propaganda's aim is often to gather and retain people who are willing to consume and repeat it more than people who necessarily consciously ideologically sympathize is so important. By acting as the agents by which propaganda terms spread and saturate public discourse, even terms whose anti-Semitic content you are unaware of, you are act still acting as an agent spreading the anti-Semitic message that is Trojan-horsed inside it. You are helping to create the new normal discourse space that serves the fascist need to scapegoat an enemy as a means of ga gathering and retaining power. People hearing you use that term... Uh, and think about the message you don't know you're spreading. It's a short trip down Google to get from cultural Marxism to the Frankfurt School to the Jews seek to control the culture. Even if you don't feel it to be anti-Semitic when you use the term, the baggage is there anyway, and it is communicating itself to the people who hear you. The concept, not just the specific term, but the whole idea it describes exists and entered the realm of public discourse solely to serve the needs of a specific narrative. Imagine it like the leg of a table. You can't detach one leg and balance your books on just that leg. Detached from the table, it is useless. If the leg is still attached to the table, then even if you try to just put your books on top of the one corner of the table where that leg is, 
if your set of books stands on that leg successfully and the books remain there instead of toppling to the ground, it's because the whole table is intact. And that's what is providing the support for your books. Not the one leg alone. The whole structure is unavoidably connected. The whole table. Cultural Marxism is an idea that came into existence solely for the purpose of creating a justification for anti-Semitism. As a name for the threat to German culture, identity, and way of life that the Jews were imagined to pose that demanded such an urgent solution. Without anti-Semitism, cultural Marxism is not coherent, either internally or with the world or context in which the idea came to be. So the question a conservative who is accustomed to finding the concept of cultural Marxism emotionally or cognitively resonant enough that he or she has been the person who is willing to repeat it is, what did this thing resonate with inside of you? I.e., what base assumptions about the world do you share with the anti-Semitic narrative this phrase is attached to? Again, please remember, I am not saying you are an anti-Semite if you have repeated this term or if it resonated with you. But you do have some base assumption, or more than one, in common with the narrative, the story of the Frankfurt School Jewish cabal bent on taking over the world by encouraging criticism of the status quo to make the idea feel compelling. When it comes to propaganda, death of the author does not apply, because authorial intent is text. Let's propose, for the sake of argument, that you can bleach the anti-Semitism from the story. What you are left with is still a story in which a specific human enemy is designated the source of all the world's conflict and misery. A story whose sole purpose, absent the troubling selection of mainly Jewish actors to play the roles of the villains and to embody the dark forces at play on the world stage, remains the designation of some human world enemy, a story whose narrative goal is to eliminate factors like empathy and integrative complexity and focus your energy on a group of persons who pose a threat serious enough to justify taking particular, especially political, action. And by political action, we necessarily mean taking action that removes power from the targeted world enemy and maintains power in the hands of those who can protect you from the world enemy. A story which selects some true facts, yes, but frames them in a way that uh, designs to lead you to an emotionally charged, truth-conditionally defective conclusion. Removing the anti-Semitic element only removes the ethnic identity of the world enemy. It doesn't change the manipulative nature of the, of the story or the conclusion that the story leads to. We must protect our power structures from the threat of the bad outgroup. Propaganda promises that what's wrong with the world is some other team, some villain who can be defeated in order to restore the world to the way it should be. Even that uh, is a combination of assumptions, the zero-sum assumption of cultural selfhood and dominance, wherein persons or groups who are not like you are automatically threatening the prelapsarian fallacy of history, not referring to the actual prelapsarian era in the Bible, but to the notion that things were simpler or more honorable or whatever adjectives carry the most personal emotional weight at some nostalgic point in history when things were right with the world. The fallacy according to which the way things are now or the way things used to be in an idealized old world is the way things ought to be. An idea mainly popular among people who benefit or benefited from the way things are or used to be and for whom questioning those ways of being is likely to be the most uncomfortable. An idea which is kind of inherent as an inherent assumption definitionally wrapped up in the concept of conservatism, of conserving something against the threat of change imposed by an outgroup, etc. 
But obviously the most important base assumption there is that something is seriously wrong with the world. And honestly, this one is true. You're right to feel that there's something wrong with the world, because there is. All of us, everyone, on the left and right and in between, and not on that artificially binary spectrum, everyone feels our shared mass anxiety and tension. Again, I'm not saying base assumptions or strong feelings are bad, or that you're bad for having them. You're right. Something is really wrong with the world. You're right to feel that way. I'm asking you to think hard about what the term cultural Marxism really means, and why a story about vulnerable and systemically suppressed people, i.e. Jews, women, people of color, amassing too much power and overthrowing the world as we know it, uh, becoming a threat that justifies extreme force, and again, that was the point of the story when it was told, and remains the point of the story in, mod in the modern-day sphere of discourse, where it has enjoyed a return to prominence, why that story felt right to you. See, this is why I knew I could only examine it very few specific examples. Every key phrase or token requires 3,000 words of explanation. <clears throat> so, one more time. Propaganda and its slogans first appeal to your base assumptions, and by doing so, manage to introduce truth-conditionally defective propositions into your frames. They take something you already presuppose and link it to something that explains and confirms the bias. This is how emotionally resonant concepts like the specter of cultural Marxism turn a normal, non-neo-Nazi person into a Trojan horse that slides anti-Semitic narratives into mainstream discourse. Being vulnerable to propaganda does not mean that you are stupid or uneducated. In fact, Jacques Ellul claims that people with more education are more vulnerable to propaganda because a. they read more and are more keyed into political, social, and literary discourse, etc., and are therefore exponentially more likely to be exposed to it, and b. They're more confident that they would know propaganda if they saw it and won't be tricked. This doesn't just refer to formal education or mean that college leftists are propagandized while, st while salt-of-the-earth Republicans are not. That's another story, isn't it? Um, it means the more confident you are that you aren't affected by propaganda, the more likely it is that you will fall for it. Regardless of how you identify morally or politically, everyone is emotionally stimulated by stories that are coherent with their own base assumptions. But a person who reads a lot and thinks a lot about culture uh, is more likely to encounter stories that are designed to take advantage of that emotionally compelling coherence to push a target toward entertaining truth-conditionally defective beliefs. And that person is less likely to smell what's fishy because, to them, coherency with their base assumptions, in a way, counts as intellectually valid proof of the propositions, not just emotionally valid proof. Elul was writing before the internet age, but he did predict that increasingly, uh, increasing availability of mass media would exponentially empower propaganda. His claims that people who read more and are more vulnerable to propaganda is exponentially more applicable in an era where everyone is on the internet and everyone is reading and consuming information constantly. Everyone is being exposed to propaganda all the time, and everyone is convinced they're too educated to be tricked. To use another botanical metaphor, if you eat the leaves of a poisonous plant, innocently not knowing that the plant was poisonous, and then someone says, uh, hey, that plant is poisonous, you better get straight to a doctor, the answer would not be to say, genetic fallacy, just because I ate from a poisonous plant does not mean that what I ate was poisonous. I don't know, that's not a perfect metaphor. Here's the most troubling trend I have observed in recent right-wing discourse. 
According to researchers associated with the Auschwitz Institute for Peace and Reconciliation, a predictor of genocide is the introduction of toxification to discourse. This describes when speakers use uh, using words related to infestations, to vermin or other parasites, to disease or carcinogens, etc., to describe a people group. Toxification takes it one step further than dehumanization. Dehumanization involves framing people as animal-like or object-like, as fungible, as commodities, as lacking subjectivity or internal personal viewpoints, or as de-individuated, referring to groups as though they were a single entity or organism, like floods or masses. NSDAP propaganda referred to the Jews using the word hauch, or a cloud or miasma. This is the step which makes killing tolerable. It is okay to kill that which is not human, at least as a last resort, to stop the flood. Toxification, by contrast, makes killing necessary. The toxic element, the infestation, is incompatible with life. As, non, as one non-neo-Nazi related example, here's Colonel John Milton Chivington speaking of the genocide of the Cheyenne and Arapaho peoples. Quote, I have come to kill Indians. Kill and scalp all, big and little. Nits make lice. Now, in my own research, for which I am currently writing a proposal, if you're curious, I propose two types of toxification, the first of which uh, can be called first tier, or referred to as militarization, and refers to the introduction of the language of war and military action to describe non-military people groups, words like invasion. This kind of language of war serves to justify the use of military action uh, or acts of war against non-military populations, which is a war crime. Like outright toxification, it frames the act of killing as necessary for the preservation of the in-group. It still takes the possibility of violence from the realm of the allowable to the realm of vital to our survival. Second tier then refers to classical, classical toxification as described, the introduction of the language of infestation, parasitism, or carcinogens. There's a noticeable overlap in these categories when it comes to words like hordes. I don't need to tell you how infamous Nazi rhetoric is for referring to the Jewish people and other non-desirables as parasites, pests, vermin, or sponges. The first time I encountered toxification in right-wing discourse, I didn't have a name for it, but I recognized it instantly. A commenter had added to an article about unaccompanied children crossing the border, quote, why aren't we popping them off like vermin? And of course, you know that the president has referred to immigrants as an invasion and as an infestation. A few weeks ago, I experimentally uh, scrolled through a couple of Breitbart articles about immigrants, uh, including one about unaccompanied children. Because it was an informal exercise, I didn't keep a strict tally, but some screenshots that I collected will be released along with this episode, along with some typo-ridden comments from me. Uh, impressionistically, though, I found an alarming amount of these comments referred explicitly to invasion, or the use of the words like hordes, to imply the immigrants... Uh, they implied the immigrants were dirty and diseased, demanding uh, the seizure of emergency powers, which is very alarming as a fascist indexing gesture. Um, remember how fascism is the reactionary consolidation of power. Actually, sometimes they outrightly demanded the use of killing to save the nation. I found several instances of clear toxification, including one instance of children being called parasites. The most infamous pre-genocidal word in human history. The proposal I am now writing seeks to carry out a similar but formally standardized study tracking the same tokens. At the end of the day, the people willing to repeat it, those responsible for consuming this rhetoric, 
for passing it around, for reproducing it, adopting its terms and parameters, and for helping it reach a greater audience, for helping it cultivate its desired attitudes slowly and through careful manipulation of information until its targets are primed for the more extreme versions which they find in online communities just waiting to take them in and make them feel like members of a swiftly growing and empowering movement that seeks to eliminate the sources of all human misery and return society to a prelapsarian ideal hierarchy which protects their interests is us. Is my friend talking about me the Me Too movement is near and dear, PMing me 4chan hoaxes and extremist special interest groups content, is me, is you, and it's our business to interrogate the base assumptions that we that you share with uh, Nazi propaganda that made you so vulnerable in the first place. Is Western civilization even a meaningful concept? Is race a meaningful biological category? Is society actually in decline? Because it doesn't seem to me like the end of legal segregation is decline. That increasing antipathy toward racism until we accidentally started uh, spreading racist ideology again by adopting the terms and discourse parameters of racist, that is, is decline. What if some things we have grown up and other things have, excuse me, what if some things have grown worse and other things have grown better? What if there is no unilateral direction for all of culture at once? What if culture is made up of people, and people are complicated, and there is no explanatory meta-story that makes the complexity go away, and gives you a clear vision of who must be defeated to save the world from decline? Because we listened to messages that appealed to our presuppositions and our anxieties. We found narratives that blamed all of the misery of the world on a group of people instead of the universal fallenness of mankind. We shared these sources and information. We adopted their paradigms of social and political discourse. We linked arms with them, whether we knew it or not. We, normal people, well-read people, mostly, I hope, well-meaning people, were and continue to be the links in a direct chain of information that leads from the worst and most toxic parts of the internet, and by extension, the engines of a pernicious old ghost we have long hoped was gone for good, rendered ghoulish by history, but still there all along on the fringes, to the public eye. Christians are most especially responsible because we are commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves, and we are forbidden to sit around deciding who meets the qualification of neighbor based on in-group, out-group qualifications. You know, like Joseph Goebbels did when he said, your neighbor is your blood and ethnic comrade. We are supposed to begin with the logs on our own eyes because judgment begins in the house of God. So where did all these Nazis come from? They came from us. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. 
or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.